Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Anusha Kalian about the hangover from conference season and two upcoming by-elections. Then I talk to Elizabeth Minkle and Ian Stedman about two sides of online communities, fandom and trolling. Then finally, our literary editor Tom Gatti talks to Damien Barr about macho masculinity and Grayson Perry's guest edit. Finally, it's over. Conference season 2014 is at a close, with Nick Clegg's speech finishing the Lib Dem conference. We're now all set for two by-elections, one in Hayward and Middleton, which looks to be a comfortable Labour hold, and one in Clacton, where UKIP is set to take their first MP seat. I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, and editor of The Staggers, Anu Shikalian, to talk about well, what's been a pretty seismic month in politics, starting off with the Scottish referendum. George, how has conference season shaped the political landscape? Well, I think the biggest winners were UKIP. Um, over that period, uh, they claimed two MPs from the Conservatives, um, which no one saw. No one saw coming. There'd been rumours of of defections before, but most people thought uh, thought the Conservatives would manage to keep the family together. Uh, second, I'd say, were the Conservatives, who bounced back surprisingly well from the reckless defection. David Cameron made what uh, is rightly regarded as as the best, the strongest of the conference speeches and fired his activists really with the belief that they can win. They've now got uh, what they think is an attractive offer in terms of tax cuts, what one uh, that responds to Labour's cost of living attack. Um, then, then the Lib Dems probably give them the, the bronze medal. <laughs> they uh, in better spirits than a party uh, some, some days on 6% in the polls deserves to be. And then uh, the wooden spoon obviously goes to Labour, who, um, who, who didn't resemble uh, um, anything like an opposition, sort of confidently marching towards government. Um, Ed Miliband now notoriously forgot several key passages in his speech, and that, uh, that has dogged them ever since. It's astonishing that how people pick up the prevailing mood, and that ref- therefore reflects how every- all your actions are seen. Because realistically, I mean, we talked about this before, Edmund Mann didn't have to memorise that speech. It was a it was a party trick that no one asked for. Um, and therefore, it just does seem like a, a terrible kind of unforced error. But equally well, the, we also see from this conference season how a, a good speech can really get you out of a hole because the com- Tory car party conference started so badly with Brooks, Newmark's Paisley pyjamas mm. and, uh, and that defection to UKIP. But that speech that Cameron made reminded everybody and you can see now I think why he's so far ahead on the who can you see as a prime minister because that was a very prime ministerial speech it was forward-looking it was optimistic it was uniting um Anoush though is there any crumb of consolation for, for Labour as they come out of 
conference season? Um, yes, um, after conference season, what people always say after the sort of fury of the leaders' speeches is that um, there's always a pole bounce for each party after after their conference season, which then goes back down again. So the Tory poll lead at the moment will probably go back down again. But however, for Labour, they didn't actually have that bounce. So that's a bit worrying for them. Um, although there are a lot of um, whisperings among MPs and sort of some senior figures, people like John Prescott, sort of expressing their disappointment in Ed Miliband's leadership, they're not going to get rid of him now because they, they still have a chance of winning and they would have no chance if they if they suddenly ousted their leader. But George, it puts Labour in an interesting position, doesn't it? Because you can see why the Conservatives have to play such a defensive strategy because mm. they are bleeding away support to a party which is looking increasingly viable electorally. That's not happening with Labour. So what, what is the thinking behind the, you know, I know that the people have been talking about the fact that they're not even trying to contest Rochester and Stroud. They, don't, mm. they, they see that very much as a UKIP Conservative battle. Why, why are they playing the, the game this way? Well, they feel they do have limited resources. They know they're going to be massively outspent um, by the Conservatives. And they really want to focus on, on their 106 target seats. And, and quite, uh, they'll put it quite coldly and rationally that we'd love to be, be in a position to win it, but we're not. So therefore, there is no point in sort of pouring resources into the seat in the hope of, of, of finishing a close second, perhaps. Or um, you know, it, it's just not a priority. And but you're right on the Conservatives having put a lot out, a lot of policy out. Um, and that's one of the things that gives Labour strategists comfort, that they feel, one told me um, the other day, Conservatives have used quite a lot of their pre-election material. We've held quite a lot back. Um, they had to do that because David Cameron was on the rack after the UKIP defections, and they had to do something to move the polls. Uh, so they still feel they've got quite a lot of cards left to play and that, and that the, the Tories have used up quite a lot of their ammo. And also it does show a slightly different way that the press reacts to Labour and Tory announcements. You know, the Tories have this advantage of being so ahead on you're trusted with the economy that David Cameron can make big pledges like we saw in his speech about moving the 40% rate of tax, moving up the minimum tax ban. And he doesn't immediately face that. And how are you going to pay for it? And how are you going to pay for it? Aren't you just turning on the money tap? Isn't that right, Anoush? I mean, he, he, he gets a different reaction to how Ed Miliband making those promises would have got. Yeah, I mean, imagine if Labour had announced such such things, they would have got absolutely pilloried by the Tories and by the press as well. So that that is difficult for Labour. But I still think that um, their promise on the NHS rings much truer than what both the Tories and actually the Lib, Lib Dems have announced um, this conference season because they're still the party that's most trusted with the NHS and I don't see that changing in the polls anytime soon so I so I actually think there was probably more substance and more that rang true in what Ed Miliband um, announced. And to talk about their Lib Dems we'd come back to this theme over and over again in the course of this parliament is that they are extremely chipper aren't they mm. and as you say much more chipper than a party on six <laughs> percent um, some you know came behind the Greens in the European elections is that because, George, they're making the calculation that they will once again hold the balance of power? That's one of the reasons, certainly. Um, and after this conference season, a hung parliament is looking more likely than ever. And uh, that means they'll be potentially in a strong position to form another coalition or at least to get some concessions in return for propping up a, up a minority government. Uh, I think there are two other reasons why they're in a, a better mood than people would expect. The first is that although their national poll rating is terrible, so on a good day they compete with UKIP for third place, on a bad day they're fighting with the Greens for fourth, they're confident that they'll be able to hold on to quite a lot of their 56 MPs, especially those who are in Conservative-facing seats. 
where they can still try and win tactical votes from left-leaning voters um, and also win over what strategists call sort of soft Tory voters, those who voted for David Cameron in 2010 because they thought he was a different kind of conservative leader. He was modern, he was compassionate and who've been alienated by the return of what by what Lib Dem says, the return of the nasty party. And then I also think it's because the, Tim Farron's put it quite well. He said that we're a family. Um, and you do feel that at a Lib Dem conference more than the much larger conservative and I do think there's a certain gatherings. kind of Millwall kind of everybody hates us and we don't care mm. kind of spirit. A- absolutely. And um, there's a feeling things can only things can only get better. And it's striking that although you've had now two conservative defectors, uh, no one's defected from the from the Lib Dems mm. to, to Labour say and uh, no one expects anyone to. Because there was a lot of talk one time about Jeremy Brown and David Laws mm. who are two of the more sort of right wing Lib Dems but they do feel that tribal loyalty that you know, mm. perhaps haven't given them credit for. That's it and almost their their tribalism in some ways paradoxically comes from their, their lack of tribalism that um, yeah, they think we are better than the Conservatives and Labour who are just focused on ruthlessly on securing power and we do care about things that most other parties don't want to talk about the environment civil liberties um and mental health obviously which they've made a which they've made a big issue and um and to that extent you can argue that the lib dems are still performing a valuable role as 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 the third party or maybe not the third party now but in pushing often marginalized issues up the agenda and let's talk a minute about the the smaller parties at least in westminster terms so we saw the background to a lot of the Scottish referendum ca- campaign was an anti-Toryism. It was, you know, you don't want to be ruled by the Tories. Is there going to be a bounce? We know SNP membership has gone up. Could a- SNP be looking at taking Westminster seats off Labour? Yes, I think the likelihood is that they will take a couple now. Probably not more than that, because I think they are riding a bit of a post-referendum wave and there'll be a swing back to Labour once the question is really framed as, well, do you want a, a Labour government or a Tory government, but they'll be able to, they'll obviously benefit from this huge activist base and they'll also be able to say to Scottish voters, look, give us more people at Westminster because we need to hold the government's feet to the fire on on further devolution. Um, And what about the Greens, Anoush? Because I mean, Brighton Pavilion is is an interesting seat. The hmm. Green Council has, has run into problems there. I mean, we always have this conversation about, and I know our readers are very, very strongly kind of say, well, you know, you give a lot of coverage to UKIP but not to the Greens. Do the Greens deserve more attention? Um, I think actually, yes, they do, because um, they have got a chance, well, a slim chance of winning Hoban and St Pancras as well. Um, But apparently this is a problem for the Greens because they actually divide their resources then, throwing them at this London seat rather than Brighton Pavilion again. And so this is actually, I've heard from a source in the Green Party that there's a bit of bad blood between the leader um, Natalie Bennett and those who are fighting for, to keep the Brighton seat as well. So there is a bit of a power struggle there that's worth um, that's worth looking at. Um, and they do they do deserve a bit more attention, I, I think. Because I think they could certainly build up their um, their base at a European level, uh, which is which mm. is something that you know again it's what UKIP did, and it's a way that UKIP managed mm. to fund itself in its slightly less glory filled Doncaster races, uh, standing on a tank days. But um, well, that all sounds very interesting. We'll come back to um, this after the by election, and we'll also look at the upcoming by election in Rochester and Stroud next week, which looks set to be a rather closer race than the two that are um, that are reporting tonight. Thank you, George and Anoush. When online communities are good, they can be very, very good. They can crowdfund important projects. 
But when they're bad, they can be very bad indeed. So I'm joined by Elizabeth Minkle, who writes for us on fandom, and Ian Stebman, our science writer, to discuss the two sides of the coin of online communities. Ian, let's talk about trolling first. There's been a very um, sad case. It's been in the news recently of Brenda Leyland, a woman who was accused by Sky of being somebody who sent messages about McCann's on social media. Uh, we know that there's been a huge amount of conspiracy theories about the, the McCann case. It's not entirely clear to what extent Brenda Leyland was involved or how much, to what extent this contributed to her suicide. Obviously, you have to be very careful about attributing particular events to causing suicides. But it does shed a light on the fact that there are a lot of people, and it comes up again and again when you look at this case and other cases, and people don't believe that they are the kind of person who would have sent these messages on the Mm. internet. Are people getting nastier, or is the internet creating a space for people to be nasty in a way that they weren't before? I'd say the latter. Um, But everything I say in this conversation is going to be, like, we have to bear in mind that my perspective on this is very different to yours. So... I can write about a controversial subject on the internet. I don't get any kind of trouble for that. People don't call me names or abuse me or send me or call me up or anything like that. Whereas um, much less controversial things can be written about by women and minorities and they get a whole truckload of problems about it. I have to say that writing about Gamergate, so luckily yeah. <laughs> most of our listeners I'm sure have no idea, living in blissful ignorance of this idea, which is a strange, huge web of conspiracies that came out. It has eventually mutated into this idea that uh, depending on who you believe, you know, women are coming to ruin computer games. And I said, well, I wrote a piece of The Telegraph, which was already slightly <laughs> trolling myself, I guess, saying in some ways, you know, women are coming to invade computer games. Yeah, they're playing them in record numbers that computer games will turn away from macho power fancies. And it was astonishing. I mean, it was 72 hours of people bombarding me. And actually, it wasn't, uh, and this was on Twitter, it wasn't all just kind of, you know, hateful, blah, blah, blah. Although there was a fair bit of that. There was just lots of people sort of trying to sap my will to live by getting into endless arguments mm. about about facts that I hadn't seen and things that were impossible to stand up one way or the other. But that, I mean, that kind of tips over into conspiracy theory, doesn't yeah. it? There's a lot of blurring boundaries here. It's interesting because you've just used the two different definitions of trolling and the same sentence when talking about the same thing, which kind of... There aren't two real definitions. Trolling used to mean basically being a wind-up merchant. So you'd be on a message board and someone would be talking about something and you'd say something stupid just to get a reaction. And that's what a lot of people still think of as being trolling. But trolling has also now come to mean um, essentially digital harassment. Mm. Um, and as much as we might like to think there's a boundary, a binary there, they actually kind of bleed into each other. There's a point at which trying to wind someone else up becomes abusing them, becomes harassing them, becomes something much worse. Well, it's much like the argument that we have about things like, you know, Ricky Gervais and ironic racism or ironic disablism and stuff like that. And it comes to the point where you're saying, you know, if you are doing, if you are saying the word mong ironically, that you might, your intention might be ironic, but at the end of the day, you are still saying a word that many people find offensive mm. and hurtful. Intentions and had, aren't magic. <laughs> yeah, and I've had shouted at them in the street. And I think the same thing happens with a lot of trolling cases. You know, you might say that you're just doing it to wind people up, but if, the, you know, it's about the effect on the, the end person. I know, do you, do you get trolled, Elizabeth? Uh, I don't. I don't think I'm well known enough to do that, to warrant that. But okay, well, let's so let's talk about this, the nicer side of, of, of kind of the way the internet has allowed vast numbers of people to coalesce around a particular interest. I mean, we've heard about it in relation to trolling, and I think there is a lot of organised trolling. But equally, the, the flip side of that is people coming together around things that they love and fandom. So tell us a bit about the fandoms that you spend time in. <laughs> well, I've been in a lot of fandoms over the years, um, currently in the Sherlock fandom, which I don't like to talk about with people outside of Sherlock because it makes me a little upset. 
Um, Are you in the elementary fandom? No. I've, <gasps> I've only seen a few episodes, though I'm not anti-elementary. I don't like that divide. Um, <laughs> but uh, it speaks with certain... <laughs> is there a war? Is there a war that I don't know about going on? There, there's some... Uh, there's some uh, I see a lot of uh, Sherlock hate from the elementary fandom, but I think it's just... It's all self-selection, what you see coming across your dash, obviously. Um, but, you know, I've been in online fandoms since the late 90s. Um, that, you know practiced fanish things before that but i didn't really have a way to connect people and i think you know that's why you see so much of it recently i think it's just been building and building over the last decade or so um it's for people who totally don't understand this what counts as kind of fanish activity i mean i classically think about things like fan fiction communities you know writing stories yourself that continue the series or the book that you love what else does it comprise uh i mean obviously i I think that the classic thing people would think of when they think of a fan or you know a nerd sci-fi nerd would be this kind of uh fact-based fandom you know the the star wars people with uh, memorizing every fact in the expanded universe and getting really upset when it's it's just um, Jost being a word, right? So this <laughs> yes. is this is kind of named after Joss Whedon. Who, right. who, uh, did he do it deliberately? Did he used to wind up the fans by just like they would get a, a certain theory about a couple, you know, a couple who were going to get together, and then he would just kill it stone dead in the next series. I mean, that's that. I guess only he can tell us for sure. I mean, he would definitely he was a participant in the message, the official message boards or the kind of sanctioned spaces. Um, so were the other writers too. And, you know, they, they, it was a very early example of, of where these lines were getting very blurry. So this is for Buffy the Vampire. Yeah, this but... is, I mean, this is back in, you know, uh, around the, the turn of the millennium. And uh, they would, you know, the writers would be in there and they'd say, hey, we're the writers. What do you think of the episode? And, uh, you know, obviously they're in a really tricky position because they can't listen too much. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, I think... Oh, there are a lot of uh, screenwriters who who do think that, yeah, ruining your theories and killing characters for the hell of it is creates dramatic tension. I give him more credit than others on that front. I think George R. R. Martin is a particular fan of, like, going, ha I have the keys to all your dreams here in my pocket, and, you know, who will I kill next? <laughs> you, know, you know that quote that he had about... Uh, the last book is just going to be like a thousand pages of snow or something like that, you know, which is like an empty field. Um, so. Ian, have you ever written fan fiction? Um, yeah, I have, actually. Oh, really? I, I remembered this the other day. So I, I was thinking about how silly it all is. And then I remember that actually when I was a kid, I wrote some Legend of Zelda fan fiction. That's really good. I was, I was God, 10 or so. Um, but me and a friend got really into like coming up with a big story about like we 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 used to like designing video games, but like using cartoons on paper mm-hmm. and then coming up with storylines for them. So yeah, I've effectively come up with Legend of Zelda fan fiction, which is probably in my parents' loft somewhere. Um, <laughs> I wrote Harry Potter fan fiction. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which unfortunately is now lost in the like mists of GeoCities or something. <laughs> oh, and hopefully, we'll never be found again. And Laurie Laurie Penny confessed that she she'd been a fan fiction writer. I think lots of people who like writing, like it because it's kind of, um, it's a training ground. You don't have to do all the work yourself. but you, And so and you can start, you can start in media threads. You know, you've got the characters, you've got the setup, everything's there. And you can just actually write. And you don't have to do that really boring kind of groundwork and research and everything. Um, another one fandom that I find really fascinating is Supernatural. Mm. So that, I mean, very few people over here have, have watched that. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, Supernatural. <laughs> Supernatural is kind of, I would say, the uber fandom amongst uh, media fandoms right now. I guess it's, I think it's in its 10th season. I've actually never watched it. Um, 
you know, I'm I, almost scared to watch it because I, people like it so much. And it's just, it's got a really complicated, you know, I wrote a piece for you guys a few months ago about the fan creator relations and, um, just, it's, it's really just seems to be, I'm not sure what the ratings are like beyond, they get pretty large ratings that seem to be just the fans, you know, it's not a, a general interest show just like Sherlock when you and I talk about like who's watching it and what fans think versus the public or whatever. Um, hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But, you know, it's it's... It brings up a lot of complicated issues. You know, the the fandom is very, very powerful. Um, they raise a ton of money for charity. Uh, they have constantly, they seem to have fan conventions, you know, where the actors are there and they raise a ton of money. They charge a ton of money for those. Um, but I think Supernatural raises this question because there's an, an awful lot of, of shipping. This is the idea of writing relationships between people and around the main characters. And it's something that obviously looms very large in the writers' minds while they're writing it. That They have this kind of huge, unofficial kind of writing staff that are doing their own things on the side. Now, I know this will make you very uneasy, but wasn't that so, was one of the problems of the last series of, of Sherlock? You want to fight right now? Yeah, I think we want to <laughs> fight right now. because You threatened to beat me up over <laughs> this as well. I told you I wasn't going to discuss it with no. you. Um, I, I think the difference is, uh, in, my, in my opinion, um, having not seen Supernatural, but having read a lot about it, um, is I, I know the writers there are hyper-aware of their fan base and... I don't, I, it's hard for me to articulate exactly why it's different, you know, but they've had whole episodes that are just kind of through the looking glass, like they're all playing fictional versions of the actors, you know, and they, it's the sort of thing where... They've gone really seriously meta. Yes, yes, that's, that's the word I was looking for. Um, Sherlock, you know, I, I definitely think that uh, The Empty Hearse, the first episode of the last series was, um, you know, it Obviously, it was a meta-commentary, I think, as a single episode that, yeah, obviously it was looking at the fans. It was also looking at the British public or the worldwide public who's viewing it or the British public who consumed, you know, the return of Sherlock Holmes more than a century ago. Because obviously, that was the ultimate fan-creator relationship where they just demanded this guy come back. Um, You know, but... There were a lot of elements that people threw the accusation of fan service at, which I, I just, I don't agree with. I think that if they are servicing anyone, it's definitely themselves. Um, they're very self-indulgent writers. <laughs> they Stop might need, sniggering you know, the back end. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think it's interesting, too, that um, I, I just think the accusation of fan service more broadly implies that someone else... It has more of a cultural privilege than you. Someone else is a fan. They've invested more time. They've invested more money. Whatever. For whatever reason, they identify as a fan, and maybe you do not. Maybe you are a casual viewer. And so when you say fan service, you're suggesting that this person in a position of privilege is being serviced in a way that you are not. I just think that's a really tricky setup because... 
that assumes a lot about the other person that you assume is being serviced. So this is the idea that, you know, it becomes almost impossible for somebody who just tunes in because they've just happened to watch the news beforehand to understand what's going on because it's so full of illusions and in-jokes and, and, right. and, I think and setups. I think there's a lot of, and, and I, don't, I see this in, in when people talk about Doctor Who too, it's just there are a lot of assumptions that you're missing something if you just casually turn, and I, I do think it's a, it's a mistake for them to have such complicated episodes as a Christmas special because... You know, that's the time when I think you're supposed to just, as, as far as I gather, <laughs> being here amongst British people, you just sit down yes. and watch it on Christmas, you know, without all the plot. I, I think those episodes were needlessly internally complicated, but perhaps didn't rely on you to have seen every single episode multiple times and, you know. No, I think it's really interesting because what you talk about there about this idea of kind of uber fans and that kind of that fan hierarchy is also something that you see very much in organized troll communities so Anita Sarkeesian who's a video game blogger who was targeted quite a lot has talked about this kind of idea of gamification of misogyny so the idea that there are kind of unofficial leaderboards that people push themselves further and further and I think that applies to to fan communities and troll communities as well that people do it to, for, for kudos within the you know there is a there is definitely a hierarchy in these online communities that can drive people to really extreme behavior and that's when you start seeing weird stuff happening um Ian, just to come back to the to the point about trolls i mean do you think that there is a, a, a legislative solution to this or is it a social solution my gut instinct is that um this is because it is it isn't something new it is just people using a new format and medium in a way to do something they could have always done but just do it more easily and more quickly um but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, can I just I, don't can know. Can I ask a yeah, question? Go for it. I, you know, I, I'm not sure I would wholly agree with you when you say it's it's the medium rather people's behavior hasn't changed. Mm. Well, people's behavior has changed, but you know, um, I don't know. You're you're a science writer. Have you yeah. encountered any of these studies they're doing on empathy and how it kind of drops when you are talking to someone as a digital avatar? Mm. You know, I can't see you. I can't imagine you. That's a pretty yeah. well-established fact. It's called de-individuation and the idea yeah. being that computer-mediated communication is because you can't get the, the facial signals even, just the extent of your eye contact, mm -hmm. you can't read people's expression. It it provides that form of uh, that you, you also see in people who just cannot read, you know, they can't see what they're doing to people. But I also think there's a thing about the idea that a lot of these cases happen so there's very i mean we always talk about this there are different types of trolling so there are essentially like neighbor disputes that now get so instead of people having a row over their hedge they now you know have a row over facebook and start sort of spreading mean messages about each other that's one thing and then there's the kind of group on high profile target attack which is a again a different thing and that i think you see a type of behavior that you also see around the way that kind of newspapers cover celebrities where there is a de-individuation and dehumanization because people wouldn't ever feel you could say that to a real person but you're not a real person you know it's someone off the telly and sure. dehumanization de yeah. is an incredibly old thing it goes back to like very old forms of racism and 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 things like that i mean but it's but prior to the development of the web how often yeah. would you talk to a stranger yeah at a distance like i that, i you know? i think that a, a drop in empathy is it's there but it's also um I mean, it's just a different kind of dehumanization is what mm. I, I, that's what I, it seems like to me. And, and it seems like, again, it's just a faster, more repeatable version of something which already could exist or did exist. But um, it's just it's more obvious now because it's 
harder to ignore. And the potential disruption that one person can cause is now so much greater. Mm. I mean, that's the thing. If you've got 150 friends, then the chances that one of them might say something out of line on a particular day. But you, you know, the multiplier effect of that now sure. is that one person can be so much more disruptive. Anyway, we should yeah. definitely, let's come back to this and we'll tease you more about Sherlock, sorry, Elizabeth. And <laughs> thank you, Ian. <laughs> I'm Tom Gatti, culture editor of The New Statesman, and I'm on the line with the writer Damien Barr, who has written a wonderful contribution to our Grayson Perry guest edit issue about sexuality and the great white male. Now, um, Damien, when we first asked you to contribute to this issue, um, did you know exactly what you wanted to say from the off? No, it was really when I started kind of exploring contemporary ideas um, of masculinity that it became clear, you know, uh, what I wanted to write about. Um, I, mean, I knew I wanted to write about homophobia in in some way, shape or form, um, but it's become so much more sophisticated um, and internalised. And so what I realised I was going to write about was the, you know, the the straight-acting gay man and the kind of tyranny of that culture. You start with a, a sort of very blunt and kind of old-fashioned instance of homophobia, don't you? I'm quite a frightening yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in Brighton, which people think is a kind of Wizard of Oz gay bubble, um, and it is on Pride Day, but you know, for every other day of the year, it's, it's much like other places. And since I've lived there, I've been chased or attacked several times by groups of homophobic men, um, never women, but that's not to say that that doesn't happen. It just hasn't happened to me. And so I describe a scene where I am walking home from the train station late at night and I get chased by a gang who have knives um, and who chase me back to my house, back to my front door, and I only just get in the front door in time. But I talk about what it was like, you know, that happening and also then just, you know, going to work the next day and people being sympathetic about it but saying... Why would they attack you? You don't look that gay. Um, and to, as, as, if, as if, you know, the gayer you look, the more, you know, the more justified homophobia is. And it really kind of troubled me that I, was, I felt offended and aggrieved um, when they were actually trying, trying to be nice. Um, and so that's what I wanted to explore in my, in my piece. It, it seems to me there's a, there's a part towards the end of the piece, there's a sentence where you say... Um, over centuries, all where you're talking about the straight man, the, the great white yes. male, the straight man. Over centuries, all this careful nurturing has been naturalised. He is the norm, yes. but he is not natural. Um, yes. And that idea of being the norm but not natural seemed to me central, not only to your piece but to the whole issue and to to Grayson's Grayson Perry's argument in his essay. So how different are those two things, normal and natural, and, and how have they come to be so confused and elided? Well, I think, I think that, um, you know, traditional masculinity is not natural. It is a learned behaviour. I remember growing up and my dad saying, you know, stand up straight, you know, lift your feet when you walk, you know, sending me to boxing classes and, and all of these things to make a man out of me. You make a man, a man is not born a male child is born and he is turned by a culture into a kind of man um, and I wanted to just make the point very clearly that masculinity is a is, is a learned behavior the great white male is a as a construct um, 
And once we accept that that that's 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 constructed, and um, we we take away a lot of the power from it. It is not natural. Um, it is completely artificial, um, and therefore is not privileged any more than any other kind of masculinity or behaviour. And I suppose if you look back through history, the ideas of masculinity vary hugely from from period to period, yeah. and in some periods yeah. were very uh, a fate or very un-heterosexual, very, very homosexual. Yeah. yeah, I think if you transported, you know, most men back to the sort of, you know, the Elizabethan court or certain French courts, they would find that sexuality was much more fluid and, and also the way that the way that men dressed was much more akin to the way that women were dressed, bejeweled, fancy. You know, we're talking about a certain class of men, of course. Um, but, you know, I think that those, chan- those, those standards of masculinity vary over time um, and across cultures, and they continue to do so now. What's interesting is, is when people transgress that, when men transgress that, um, you know, the dominant masculinity still punishes um, uh, other kinds of masculinity that, you know, that either compete um, or contradict what it is that they're saying. Um, so, you know, the, the, the power lies with the dominant form, with the, with the, with the great white man that, that Grayson writes about so brilliantly in his essay. It is, it is quite interesting that you say that you find at the moment gay culture particularly intolerant of campness. Is that, yes. some, is that something that is um, um, particularly noticeable now, at this moment now in 2014? I think, I think that I think that I mean there are various you know gay culture is very fragmented and diverse and the more the closer we get to some kind of equality in some ways you know that this argument is a, is, is, is a luxury but you get you know the, if you look online the, the idea of a straight acting gay man the mask musk dude um, you, this idea that, that, that you know we have to I don't know if it's a leftover residue of having to fit in or wanting to be seen to be the same as everybody else to be in order to be treated the same um, I don't know, but I do think that there is a kind of in, intolerance, certainly in the sexual aesthetic, um, and I talk about, you know, I talk about that in my piece. Um, you know, I think the more interactions move online, the easier it is to silence people um, or shut people out who you think are camp or whose masculinity isn't, you know, they just aren't butch enough for you, basically. So um, I do think... I do think that there's a, a reaction against that. But maybe part of part of it, in some sense, is healthy. I mean, like, you know, the idea that all gay men had to be sort of mincing and simpering Larry Grayson-type people yeah. in order to be very identifiably so, in order to be laughed at and contained with humour and completely desexualised is, is, you know, is... It's, it's a problem that we, you know, I think have largely moved beyond as a culture, although there are still those tropes and those stereotypes. So, um, but I do think that, you know, the rise of the, the straight acting gay man is, is problematic because it's, I think, about internalised homophobia. You know, there are as many ways to be gay as there are to be straight. Um, and you don't have to ape um, your oppressor uh, in order to have power or, or status or freedom. You talk about uh, the twin forces of homophobia and misogyny, and and yes. um, how do you think those have changed over the past ten years? Is it is it that the situation has become better, or is it that it's less overt but still pretty endemic? 
I think legislatively it certainly has got better, um, but I think you know in terms of our in terms of our culture, you know, I'm I'm, I'm continually shocked by the casual misogyny. Everyday sexism is a you know terrifyingly good example of you know the the, the stuff that women have mm. to put up with every day. And certainly as a gay man, you know, I feel like you know the the many microaggressions of homophobia, you know, are still still kind of inflicted on me i may be better at managing them maybe fewer of them but they, they definitely still happen um but i think that it's become more sophisticated i think the street acting gay man is about internalized homophobia I definitely think that um i i do i do feel that um but so back to your to your question has it has it got has it got better or or, or worse in the last 10 years again i think it's partly dependent on class and race and you know if you're just dealing with one variable if you're talking about intersectionality but um, I always think of Judith Butler and the idea of gender crimes, you know, uh, if gay men, camp gay men um, and women who are ballsy um, are, are refusing both in both instances to perform their gender properly mm. and that's a gender crime and we continue to be punished for that and we see that in popular culture and we see that in our politics um, and, uh, you know, we see it all around us every day. Something that um, more broadly uh, Grayson identifies in, in his essay, um, and you hinted it in yours, is this idea that of that the straight white male is a sort of default position. And it's very, very hard to talk about because it's become the, the norm, it's become the standard, yeah. and it's become the way of looking at the world, which makes it very hard for the world to look back on it. Yes. Um, so... Um, do you agree with that line? And and if so, how do we go about dismantling that? Or is it already in the process of being dismantled and just with a bit more time it will crumble to the ground? Well, no, I think that there are always there is always going to be a move in any culture for one group to be for one group to be dominant. Uh, um, and to protect, you know, to self-protect and protect its protect its rights and its privilege. There, I finally used the word privilege. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think that um, I think the very first thing to do is to point out that it that it is not natural, that it is a construct, and that if we construct it in one way, we can choose to construct it in another way, thinking optimistically. And also, you know, let's 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 say that you know it's not it's not. Um, the system operates to oppress those men as well. There's a great project called the Good Men Organisation, which is about you know get offering men different ways to be you know straight white men, um, you know to not be a part of that, to not be a part of that system, um, to share their privilege, to you know behave in different ways. You know, I think I think that culture operates to oppress the oppressor as well, um, as as well as those who you know who who do obviously enjoy the the privilege um but i think the first the first step is just to kind of recognize that it is a construct and therefore we can choose to construct it differently it's just lego you know <laughs> which is of course uh, now much more gendered than it was in my childhood oh god i saw the other day some adverts for kinder egg and it was kinder pink kinder egg for girls and blue kinder egg for boys and i just kind of wanted to puke um you know but you know the, but then the, you know look at you know brilliant katie guest the literary editor of the independent on sunday who said that she won't review books um aimed for, for children's books um which are you know gendered children's books aimed at girls or aimed at boys and i just think that that's a really bold brave you know step for a national newspaper um to be taken because that nexus of gender and sexuality is very it's very complicated um but it is also kind of if, if you find yourself at it it's quite clear and it does begin in in childhood that uh 
that sort of imprinting begins very, very early on. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, and it becomes this cliche of nature and nurture, um, but you know, if we if we take it, if we if we pan back from that and we realise that nature is really only what we nurture most um, and are most invested in, then then it's all up for grabs. Damien Barr, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Maughan. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.